Hello and welcome to The Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Azania Jarvis and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads and everything in between. I'm interested in the stories behind the stories and the joy that books can bring, no matter what genre or style. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, but for the best experience, I really recommend using the new app Entail, which will allow you to look at exclusive pictures as we talk, click on links, even shop the books featured. It's truly amazing. My guest this week is the phenomenal Farah Storr, author of The Discomfort Zone, one of the most thought-provoking and useful books I read last year. Of course, as well as being an author, Farah manages to squeeze in a few other things too. As editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan, she took a hugely famous but struggling magazine brand and turned it around, increasing circulation a staggering 59% after joining in 2015, making it the highest-selling British glossy magazine. Before that, she was launch editor of Women's Health, the most successful magazine launch of the decade. She's also a TED speaker and a social mobility commissioner. Farah, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So how did it feel hearing all of that? Was that your comfort zone or your discomfort zone? Um, it's always my discomfort zone. It's like having my picture taken. Uh, I, I mean, I just don't like it because when you, I think when you work with words as a living, hearing words to describe you, because language is powerful, right? I, I, I find it very uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I, I actually don't like hearing stuff about myself. So can you explain what the discomfort zone is for anyone who's not familiar? So the discomfort zone is essentially, it's a, it's a place that you should and need to take yourself um, and stretch yourself um, in order really to, to understand what you're truly made of, I think. Um, so I think one of, the th- one of the reasons why I wrote the book, look, was all the success that I'd had in my life when I look back was at periods where it had felt quite uncomfortable. Mm. And actually, when I look back, there was a pattern to everything I'd found uncomfortable in my life, particularly the two editorships that you just mentioned. Um, that discomfort had actually served me really well. And I discovered quite incredible things about myself. Because I think when you're forced into an uncomfortable situation, you very quickly discover two things. You discover um, your weaknesses, and actually that's really valuable because not a lot of people know what they're not very good at. Um, And you also uncover incredible strengths that you didn't know you have. So the discomfort zone, it is a state of mind. Sometimes it's a literal literal thing, but it's a a metaphorical place even um, where you really discover your true potential. And I, I don't think enough people put themselves into it. And so they never really find out what they have. So as you mentioned there, you drew a lot on your own experience in the book. Uh, Just rewinding a bit, what was it that made you want to go into writing and editing? Well, first of all, I didn't know it was a job. So when I was growing up, I always read magazines. I I think it was on Wednesdays when Just 17 would come out. And my granddad, he was teaching me guitar. um, And actually he would, I knew if I went to guitar lessons, which really I think he was quite lonely and he just wanted my company. But (laughs) but I got my guitar lesson, which I hated. I'm not musical, but I also got my Just 17. And actually um, it was something that really, I really look forward to. It just took me into another place reading magazines, but I didn't know because I grew up in Manchester. Um, I didn't know anyone that was a journalist. I just didn't think that 
it was a job that people could get paid to write mm. and of course people don't get paid much to write but <laughs> I didn't think it was a job um I think my dad would still say it's not a job um but it was only actually when my sister so my sister had 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 become a lawyer um because my father was kind of dead set on his two daughters becoming lawyers or doctors she became a lawyer and then she entered a um she entered a competition in a magazine it was more magazine and she she wrote she wrote a letter i think to a male model um it's very different time back then (laughs) um and she won and part of the package part of the, the the prize was you went on a date with a male model but also you went to do work experience on a magazine and i remember she came back to manchester and she was like oh my god you wouldn't believe but people get paid to write for a living they get paid Mm. to edit magazines and to cut a very long story short um she stayed in touch with the magazine a job came up as junior writer she Mm. ditched the law and moved down to london and because she did that she paved the way for me a because i suddenly realized there was opportunity if you love writing there was a place for you um but also she made the passage much easier for me because I think if my sister hadn't have done that, I would have. It would have been very difficult. It would have been very uncomfortable for me to have had that conversation with my father that I want to be a journalist because my dad is from Pakistan. It's just not really seen, or he certainly didn't see it as um, as, as a good profession. And and how does he see the profession now? Different. I mean, he must be hugely proud of you. Um, I mean, he doesn't read the magazine. I'm not entirely sure he knows what I edit. Um, But he understands being an editor. So I think what he understands is I'm the boss. And so that has status with it. And also, I think, um, though some people would argue about security in journalism, but I now understand. I mean, I'm not a parent, but he just wanted security for his kids. And I think now he sees... um, that actually journalism can offer that it's a good it's a good profession and um it has its own different sort of status mm. so he's yeah i think he is proud i hope he's proud i'm so fascinated by that did did being an author carry a different different weight for him when the book came out no i mean he I, it's funny isn't it at a point in your life you have to stop trying to impress your parents because yeah. actually your parents it's not that they don't care but my dad he will not be able to tell you what my book is called. He will not have read my book. He, You know what means a lot to him is when I'm on TV. It's yeah. really interesting. So I don't think the book or the magazine, as proud as he is, but when I'm on TV, when I go and see him, he's got every single thing taped that I've ever oh, been on. Amazing. And most of it I've never seen. I mean, I can't bear watching myself on TV, <laughs> but he has got, and sometimes he tells me he just watches it back. So um, it, it means something to him now. Speaking of going on TV, I mean, you, you have to do a huge amount of that, both as an author and an editor. And you, of course, you went up against Piers Morgan. Uh, how do you steel yourself with that? Is that nerve wracking? I'd find it hugely intimidating. Yeah, I, I think it is. But I think you have to harness the nerves. And actually, the nerves are all are all part of it because actually I always say if you weren't nervous I'd be slightly worried mm. it's like when you take on a new job and you go oh my god I feel I, I feel a little bit out of my depth or mm. imposter syndrome I always actually say imposter syndrome is a really good thing to have because yeah. it's a sign you've pushed yourself into your discomfort zone and also the thing that makes you doubt yourself is the very thing that makes you do all the research learn everything it, it's the thing that pushes you to learn more and be better so actually I always say if I go into a job where I'm sat putting my feet upon the table thinking I know it all that actually is dangerous so with Piers Morgan for example 
Um, yeah, I did feel nervous, although I interpret it as challenge because actually nerves and challenge feel very similar in the body, mm. like the beating heart and the, the sweaty palms. Um, and I think you need that. It's really important you feel like that, but that you interpret it as a good sign and not a negative because that's when you become overwhelmed and then you do become stuck. One of the things that I found fascinating in the book was your differentiation between the slog and the grind. Uh, There can be some discomfort that's productive and some that is not. Can you explain that concept a little? Yeah, so so I always say to my team, if you've had a really bad job, so when people are leaving, they often quite understandably get nervous and go, well, it might be terrible. And I go, well, it probably won't be, and it will probably be difficult, and it will feel difficult. And I say, but if it is a terrible job, I said, that's a really important experience because a slog essentially is when you are working flat out, but nothing seems to change. You are you are giving everything and, every, and, and whatever you do doesn't seem to create any movement in, in the direction of travel. Mm. Whereas a grind is when you are really working very, very hard, but you can see changes. You can see that your direction of travel, you are moving somewhere, which of course is incredibly fulfilling. Um, you know, I've always said that I think, you know, human beings need... Um, you need struggle, you need to carry a load. It actually feels incredibly fulfilling to go to bed at the end of the day and feel you've really stretched yourself. A slog does not feel like that. A slog feels like everything is dark and no matter what you do, um, it's never going to change. So if you have a really bad job, I think that's really important and you hold on to that feeling because then you can compare when you have a job which is just challenging. Mm. The difference between a bad job, which is a slog, and a difference between a job which offers you the grind, which is a really um, is a really excellent job to have. Mm. And speaking of jobs that are challenging, as you said, your two editorships inform the book. Uh, tell me a little bit about launching Women's Health because... It's such an established title now, but at the time it was unheard of, and yet you were so successful. So I'd just come back from, I'd been living in Australia for um, almost four years, and I'd come back, I was basically unemployed, so I was freelance, but wasn't really doing much work. And when I was in Australia, I worked at Marie Claire, and down the corridor they had launched this magazine called Women's Health. And I remember none of us really took it very seriously because it had this, this name. And it very, very rapidly became a huge success. So when I was approached about the job, and when I say approached, it wasn't like they wanted me to have the job. Um, I think they were just desperately looking for an editor because as it transpired, they had an editor who had left, um, who obviously found it a bit of a grind. Well, a slog, actually. Um, (laughs) So I obviously was, was, I applied for the job and I got the job. And I and I, I took on the I took on the job because I knew the potential of this magazine because I'd seen in Australia mm. um, was that it could be huge. Now, mm. of course, in Australia, the wellness industry is way more established than it was when I started out. Um, so when I took the job, I remember um, the publishing company um, said, "Can you start really quickly?" And we need it turned around. I think we had six or seven weeks, mm. um, and we had to start from scratch. And I had two people. I had a picture director and I had an art director and it was just me. And we had very limited resources. And and the reason, of course, was because it was a terrible time for magazines. Nobody um, thought it was a good idea to launch a magazine, Mm. apart from my brilliant publisher who just had a hunch that it would work. Um, And we just had to get on with it. Um, And it was... 
I mean, I've never worked so hard in my life, but actually starting women's health under such um under such constraints so so no time six weeks mm. very very limited budget pretty much no staff um actually created something quite incredible because we were forced to we were forced into our discomfort zone but by being forced with those constraints what happened was we had to think differently about things so one of the things that women's health is famous for is a lot of the visuals in women's health are, are concept, uh, conceptual images. And that was born out of, we couldn't really afford to have these incredible glossy images of models. So yeah. we had to think, I mean, I remember we did one shoot, um, we had to do a set, we did, did a sex story. And we didn't, we couldn't really afford to have beautiful sex imagery. So I remember we had a fruit bowl and I was like, oh, well, let's just stick a banana in a melon and just see what it looks like. And, and actually, uh, it didn't really cost us anything. And it was so, uh, such an arresting image that actually it was the thing that people spoke about. They're like, oh, this is a bit close. You know, this, this, this is pretty full on. But actually, that was the brilliance of women's health. It was a health yeah. magazine, which was um, irreverent. It was, it could be quite shocking. Um, and I think as well, because of the time constraints, if I'd have had lots of time and a massive, a massive team, um, I would have canvassed for opinion. And actually, I only had my two colleagues. So actually, our tone was kind of quite naughty and mischievous. Mm. I think if I'd had time to test that, I don't think that would have happened. So the constraints were absolutely crucial in women's health becoming quite a different product. And in being a different product, it became a success. And then you were offered the job at Cosmopolitan, which sounds like the dream job in so many ways, and yet you had to think quite hard before accepting it. Can you tell me about that? Well, I was really happy at Women's Health for a start. So when they approached me about Cosmo, and and this time I was approached, um, I, I remember I'd said to my husband, I'm just starting to feel comfortable for the first time. I'd been at Women's Health for three and a half years. And I said, I'm just starting to feel comfortable now. And it's really interesting to feel like this where everything is ticking along. And then, and I, I remember saying to my husband, I'm going to stick it out for a little bit and just enjoy my job. And then after that, actually, my plan was to leave journalism because I was really worried about the industry. Mm. Uh, this was in 2015. I was really worried about the industry. And actually, I had fallen in love with wellness and business. And I thought I was going to start um, like a Pilates studio. I, actually, do you know, I wanted to start something called Zen Run. And it, what it was going to be was it was going to be treadmills by candlelight. And people were just going to run and meditate and hopefully not fall off the treadmills. <laughs> and it was going to be like Soul Cycle bottom treadmills. Actually, there is something which has started, which is very I'm similar. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to start Zen Run. And then actually, the more I thought about it, I thought, actually, do I want to be in a dark studio you know for like 15 hours a day (laughs) and so Cosmo came along and and um because I I had been I had been thinking actually I'm going to get out of journalism um it just felt like oh is this the time to be taking on a magazine and a magazine which needs a needed a rethink uh, you know Mm. um they were very honest with me and also you know I was saying to someone recently Cosmo was one of the places I'd always applied for jobs there and I had never ever um got through the door I don't even think most of the time I got to second interview and and I remember every time I went and interviewed for a job at Cosmo, I just got the sense that I wasn't a Cosmo girl. Mm. And it, because magazines are very tribal, right? You, you, and tribal in a good way, you, you kind of, you, there's a real loyalty for magazine brands. And I just thought I wasn't a Cosmo girl. So why not? What made you not? Because a they never girl? gave me the job. So I just thought, well, they obviously think, I think actually at that time I was quite serious. I think I, 
because I'd always actually wanted to be a very serious, um, like a war reporter. That's what I really wanted to, to do, but it never happened. Um, so, yeah, I just don't think they, they thought I was a Cosmo girl, whatever that meant, I suppose. And I couldn't put my finger on it apart from I, I, I just didn't fit the mould. And, mm. and so I think you, and, and this was when I was in my 20s, I used to apply for jobs at Cosmo. Whenever the jobs would come up, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to apply for a job at Cosmo. And, and after a while, I remember one time I saw a job at Cosmo and I thought, what's the point? Like, mm. you know, I'm, I'm just not that type of woman. And, of course, when I eventually got to Cosmo, I didn't think there is a Cosmo girl. I think it's mm. just a state of mind, actually. You can be from Salford or you can be from Belgravia. You can be 15 or you can be 50. And actually... Um, if you're smart and you're fun and you're ballsy, then you should just... Cosmopolitan is for you. But but those were all my hesitations about it. So there were like three main ones. And it was quite a challenging time to start with, but it's gone on to be such a huge success. Thank goodness, yes. Uh, <laughs> what are your challenges now in the job? Now you've made such a phenomenal success of, of Cosmopolitan. What do you find challenging day to day? Well, I think you... What's that thing? Success feels like you're never quite there. So I think, I actually, I always feel, I was saying to my husband the other day, I think it's always better to be the chaser rather than the leader. And actually, because you always have something to to aim for. And actually, when people talk, that's why I get embarrassed, actually, when you talk about, well, Cosmo is this big success. Because actually, when you are a success, or when people say you are, I mean, I, I tend to never stop and think about it. But it's quite hard because you've got to keep it up. And for me, my challenge is now, well... Cosmo how is it what is Cosmo going to look like in in kind of five years 10 years time 20 Mm. years time what is it going to look like and so my challenges are you know what are the the how does the Cosmo brand manifest itself in different areas of 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 women's and men's actually lives so Mm. we have um we have Cosmo houses where we house young women it's open to young boys as well um, who work in the creative industries who can't afford to be in the capital that is a challenge because we are landlords now effectively mm. um, we're just rolling out a sex education um, pilot scheme across the country with um, secondary school kids mm. that is a challenge that has all sorts of challenges but 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 it, it, it's the right thing for Cosmo to do we actually do it with men's health um, it's just looking at all the different platforms and making each one of them as good as the other. So mm. that is, I, it's not difficult, but it's challenging. And, ev- and every day, I mean, that's what I kind of do is I challenge myself and I challenge my team a lot as well. You know, if I put them in a brainstorming group, I try and take the numbers down a bit so they have an artificially small group or I'll take deadlines back because I think it goes back to the constraints again. Mm. People do operate, they don't realise it, but they do operate quite well when there's a little bit of pressure applied. Mm. You mentioned there some of the incredible things you've been doing with the Cosmopolitan brand. You're also doing the scholarship and you were recently named a I forgot social, about mobility. That. <laughs> social mobility uh, commissioner. Um, a government social mobility commissioner and well we're independent oh right yes, okay we're independent okay yeah. uh independent social mobility uh commissioner why is that so important now uh it feels particularly urgent in the creative industries this access issue yeah i think so well i mean the scholarship um well it, it's for scholarships and I, I think there's there's two actual reasons. I think one of the things is so my sister got her 
her star in journalism through a competition. Mm. My husband also actually um, was a dropout. He was working in a record shop. Mm. Um, there was a, a competition in Loaded magazine, which was something like, have you got a fanzine? If so, uh, we want to know about it. And he had a fanzine and he got a job and it kickstarted his career. Yeah, so, so there were opportunities created for people who had no networks. My sister mm. and Will, my husband, had, had no networks. They, were, you know, they didn't know anybody in, in, in our world. So I think it's really important once you're in our world, because it can be quite insular as you open it up. Mm. And what's that, that this is not me, I think it was Idris Elba, is that there's a lot of people with talent, but not a lot of people with opportunity. And I totally mm. believe that. So I think if you are in a position where you can open up opportunity to people, you kind of have to do it. Yeah. And also, it's not just about opening up opportunity. Actually, what you have to do is make sure people are seeing it. So with the scholarships, when we were thinking about okay, how can we make sure everybody can do this? I, I've got a couple of things, which I'm still doing today, is do we work with pirate radio stations? So it's not just Cosmo people applying for it. I don't mind if you don't read Cosmo. I just mm. care about if you want to be a writer. Um, we also had to make sure we're not just giving you a scholarship, we're giving you um, housing. So the scholarship comes yeah. with housing. The scholarship comes with travel. The scholarship comes with food. Because there, are, I think there are lots of barriers where we think, oh, if we do a scholarship, but you have to keep going back and back and back and thinking, well, what else might stop someone from applying for this? Yeah. Even to the, and, and I could probably keep going back and back, but even down to the point of um, food, because I was talking with someone the other day from the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, and we were talking about poverty, and they said, you know, the first thing that goes from people, because the only thing they have to deal with when you're struggling, the only bargaining tool you've got is your food, and that's the first thing that people get rid mm. of. They they would starve, basically. Um, and so the food thing, it's a, it's a really weird point to go, and the scholarship will do shopping for you. It's really important, actually. Yeah. So that's why the scholarship is really important. And I think the social mobility commissioner role... Look, I grew up in Salford, so my, my, my dad did run the, the local shop. But he got out of it. He then, um, he worked his way up and he actually became quite a successful property developer in the end. But he started mm. with very little. And we also, we grew up, even when my dad made money, we never left Salford. And Salford, those of you who know Salford, it's a, it's a gritty place. Mm. And so I, I suppose I know what it's like to see people struggle and you know it's not nice life isn't fair is it right life is ultimately not fair and it never will be and you're never going to change it but if you can try and make and it sounds so horrible and cliche but if you can try and if you can try and make the struggle less difficult for people you should try and do it and I just thought this year you know I don't have kids I'm 40 I was like it's probably I'm probably in a good position to to look into this and to see what really is stopping people from being able to have the same opportunities because that's what social mobility is it's less about the poverty it's more about you should have the same opportunities no matter where you started in life I that's hard yeah I mean I couldn't agree more and it's it's really brave and bold I think as a magazine brand to be doing that um, in terms of fitting it all in uh, you do so much. How did you manage to write a book around that? Well, the book was about two years late, so I didn't really manage it. 
um i'm very well, honest it's about out. that it's out <laughs> do you, you know what? i'm so proud of myself it is yeah. out and it's done and it's dusted and i don't think i'll ever write another one i mean i might later in my life um you have to make the time i mean I, it was five o'clock in the morning on saturdays and sundays because yeah. you know my husband was like you decided to write a book but we have our marriage and I don't see you because we live quite far out. So Monday to Friday, I get home very late. Um, my husband is a journalist as well. He's a writer, actually. He, um, he, we don't see a lot of each other Monday to Friday. So our weekends were always about reconnecting. And you've got to do that with your partner because yeah. otherwise you just float off and you look back and you have nothing in common anymore. So Saturdays and Sundays were our time to reconnect. But of course, Will was like, but you've got to write the book at the weekend. And I was like, so... That's why I did it so early in the morning because actually mm. otherwise I could have spent all day Saturday, all day Sunday and then you've got to make time for your marriage. So you got to find the time. I was quite disciplined. It was like five o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock and at 10 o'clock the dogs start to pour me and they want a walk and so it was time to finish and um, yeah, it was really hard. It was really hard. I kind of don't know what to do myself now at weekends. Probably why I've <laughs> You've got free, taken out. Yeah, free time. I, I, yeah, I don't know what to do. Well, I, I just garden now, but it was very difficult. And that's why when people go, I'm going to write a book, it's like, really think about it because yeah. everybody has a book in them, but yours might be a Sudoku rather than a, a big book. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it's, it's a big commitment writing a book. You must have had so much feedback. Uh, I, I've seen it so many times on my Instagram feed and other social media. What is that like when people say that your book has made a difference to them? Oh, it's so nice. Yeah, it's it's so nice. Um, Do you read all the reviews on Amazon and so on? My husband said, "Don't read the Amazon reviews. <laughs> you'll never be happy." But I have, I have, I did think they were made up. I was like, "These are because they're they're very nice. Yeah. Um, they're very nice." And um, yeah, it's lovely. It's very heartwarming. I think that's the best you... I think as a, a journalist and as an editor, I think the thing I'm most proud about with the book and the magazines is that um, hopefully I'm as honest... I, I try to be as honest as I can be. And sometimes mm. that might not always paint the best picture of me. Um, but I think it's important, actually. And, and I think that's one of the things with the book. When I meet people, when I've done book signings and things, it's it's that... I mean, they don't say this, but essentially you can you can see that they're thinking you can be successful, but a bit of a fuck up as well. And and I think that's important. I think that's quite an important message to people. It's definitely one of the things I, I loved about the book was the way you were so open about vulnerabilities, times you'd felt nervous or felt, felt challenged. Yeah, um, still do. Were you nervous before putting that out there? No, because I think... I think someone told me years ago, very early in my career, is that the best, most effective journalism is when you are vulnerable. And if you are not prepared to be vulnerable, especially if you write like memoir stuff, then it's not going to affect any change. Because mm. people can tell when you're putting it on. Do you know what yeah. I mean? People know. It's like people know when you're lying. So I think since my 20s, I've always written like this. And people always go, oh, you're so brave. Well, it's not brave. It, it's just just being honest yeah. you know but but I think I think what comes with age is so I've never had a problem being vulnerable in print or writing about my life but I I think when I was younger I perhaps cared more about what people would think whereas now I 
just don't really care. And actually, if people disagree with me, I think that's a good thing because that's also effective journalism is if your piece, everybody agrees with you, I think it's probably not a very good piece, actually. I think your Mm. point is to make people think twice about things. And when people think twice about things, sometimes it means they're not going to agree with you. And I think that's right because that's how dialogue starts. One of the pieces you recently wrote, which really struck a chord, uh, was the idea of having it all-ish, giving up on the idea of having it all and instead embracing having it all-ish. Can you explain that concept and what led you to come to that conclusion? So, well, I suppose it probably started with... Well, it started with Cosmo, first of all, because Cosmo came up with um, You Can Have It All. And of course, actually, um, and, and so you had a whole, you had generations of women who were like, well, I can have the job, I have, can have the career, I can have the marriage, I can have the kids. Um, and it was because actually the very, very famous and brilliant editor of Cosmo who made it this incredible product, Helen Gurley Brown, she had a book called Having It All. Mm. Now, when I actually looked into it, Helen Gurley Brown, interestingly, didn't have didn't have kids right um and I always thought it was weird because she was so amazing and I always thought it was weird that she would um that she would propagate that um to women and actually when I looked into it when she wrote her book called having it all she had never wanted to call it that actually that was the publishers came up with that okay she'd come up with something like no she had she called girls mouse burgers and mouse burgers were girls who were um young feisty women who had no connections no nothing and came to the city to 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 make it to make it basically that was a mouse burger so i think she might have wanted to call it something like that but they they wanted to call it having it all because it's really catchy and it it took off Mm. and actually i think it's probably right in the 60s 70s even 80s for it to take off because sometimes you do need those um those ambitious ideas to get people moving Mm. and of course my mum was a working mother she had four kids um but she also had a career as a teacher and she was really good at her job you know you know we all think our friends and our families are good at the jobs but she actually was a really talented teacher and she was always turning down jobs she was always turning down being a head teacher or a deputy head teacher um and I always thought it was very odd that she turned these down um, and she was always late as well to pick me up from school. So me and my brother would always be the last kids picked up. And at bake sales, my mum, everyone else had these amazing cakes and my mums were just really crap. Like I used to be really embarrassed. But it's because she'd get home at night and she'd try to do them and, and yeah. she'd try to hold it all together. And I suppose I also, I looked at that and I was like, well, I don't think it's right, this idea of having it all. Something yeah. gives. And, and my parents got divorced in the end. Um, so for me, I spent most of my life thinking I was going to have kids and I'd have the big career and I'd have the wonderful marriage. And actually, when I, just as I'd taken on Cosmo, we'd started trying for a baby, me and my husband. And it, it wasn't really happening for us. Mm. Um, and we had all the tests and we just couldn't figure out. And, and so actually I went down the line of IVF and when I was at the IVF clinic, um, it was when she was telling me what were the chances of us, you know, conceiving or having a baby. And I just suddenly had this this feeling that this is probably not for me. And also I worried about, God, if I, if I start a family now and I'm just about to take on this massive job, and, and I know what I'm like as a person because when I do something, I get quite obsessive about it. So mm. I, I have to give it everything. And I... I didn't think that I could do both to a standard that I would have been happy with. And I think there are lots of women who do. 
you know, and all power to them. But for me personally, I didn't think I could do it all. Um, understanding that I probably couldn't do it all did make me question, should you want to have it all? Because it's like when you're a child, you don't, I always say it's like you don't get to go to the birthday party and go to ballet class. You have to choice, uh, you have to decide mm. and you have to make a choice and choices are uncomfortable. But ultimately, that is what the world is about. You, mm. you can't go down every single path. At some point, you have to go, this is my direction of travel. And you have to keep going with it. And, and so I thought it was probably a slightly more realistic um, proposition to young women um, that don't worry if, if you don't think you can do it all. Or in fact, if you don't want to, then that's totally all right as well. But, you know, that's feminism, isn't it? It's it's choice. Mm. Um so I just thought it was a different message to give people. You mentioned uh, earlier that you had felt it wasn't a good time for magazines at the time that Women's Health was launching. How do you feel about the industry now? Is it a, a good time? I think it's a much better time. Mm. It's interesting. I think then, so that would have been... So Women's Health was 2012, and that was not a great time because a lot of magazines were closing. And then Cosmo was 2015, and it was still a rocky time, Mm. you know. But now I feel, I actually feel it's a really good time for magazines if you are a strong brand. Mm. Um, And I think there will always be a place for magazine brands, always, and you know, particularly big brands like like Cosmopolitan. So I actually feel it's a really hopeful time. I mean, we're doing really well, and we're doing really well across all platforms. So there is a place for Cosmopolitan magazine in people's lives. I mean, we can see that by the numbers. There is a place for um, uh, Cosmo Online, Uh, in women's lives there is a place for Cosmo on Snapchat discover people live in Cosmo houses so I think it's a really exciting time because it's a difficult time but I think because of that if you embrace I guess you know if you embrace the discomfort of it being a challenging time actually it can be the most exciting time because we have found all these different avenues with which um, the brand is now represented on and it's amazing you know, and actually we, we reach a much bigger consumer base now as well. So, and everyone from kind of 13 right up to women in their 50s. So I think it's a really good time to, to go into journalism. So before we wrap up, I've just got a couple more questions for you. Uh, first of all, what's next for you? What does 2019 look like? You said not another book, so. <laughs> it's definitely not another book. Um I just, you know what, I just, there was something the other day, the editor of New York Magazine had just, um, either retired or resigned, I don't know, but but he, there was something that he said when he left which really struck me, which was, I want to, I want to know what life feels like with a bit less ambition in it, mm. and it really, I don't know, something in it really resonated with me, and I think 2019, just want to look after my garden, I just want to <laughs> spend some time at home with my dogs, so I just want to maybe um, not not get comfortable, but I, I do want to, um, I think for my spare time, I just want to, you know, relax yeah. a little bit, perhaps. Yeah. Have a few weekends. Yeah. Um, have all my weekends on. <laughs> and finally, just because I ask everyone this question, uh, if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self or to any aspiring authors or magazine journalists, any aspiring editors listening, what would it be? 
So life advice or specifically to writers? Either one. Well, I think the life advice would be get yourself a rule book and make yourself four points. What do you what are the things that you you stand for as a person? So it might not be kindness, it might be eccentricity or understand what your values are and mm. stick really closely to them and if you sway from them then hold yourself accountable mm. because I think as you get older the the one thing you know we all know that happens is you change as a person but actually if your values and your rules stay the same you remain inherently the person you set out to be so I think that's really important understand what's really important and stick to it um, and I think advice to writers is write because the number of people who say to me I want to be a writer and I go well do you keep a diary do you have a blog um, and they go oh no and it's like well you're never going to find your voice unless you write and finding your voice is the most crucial thing to any writer don't try and be somebody else discover what your voice is and you mm. only do that by writing and writing so ev- everyone should keep a diary I think can I ask you an extra question now yes what are your four four values you don't have to tell. <laughs> my four values um well it's not quite a value but but I've always um and it sounds a terrible cliche now but it's always one of them I won't tell you all of them but one of them is about staying curious um and that's always been and this was before I was a journalist um and I think it comes from my dad who um is just interested in people. He's the man who used to literally um, drag people in off the street to come and look at our house. It's very odd behaviour. But then he would sit with them and he would just find something interesting in them and he didn't always mm. agree with where they came from or their, their opinions, but he listened and he was curious enough to ask them questions. Mm. And so my thing is always stay curious. And um, actually one of my others, which is kind of related, is never judge. I tend mm. not to judge people. It's like whatever their decisions are, um, I try to be as, as, as respectful. That's why I always say I don't have a problem with trolls because at most of the time it's just people who want to voice their, their opinions. Mm. So, um, yeah, remain curious and don't judge. Farah, on that note, thank you so much for your time. You've Welcome. been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. And to everyone listening, The Discomfort Zone is out now. If you haven't read it, I urge you to do so. It's completely brilliant and there's a link in the show notes. So that's it from us. Thank you so much for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Azania. Finally, if you fancy coming along to watch me interview brilliant authors live, I also host a monthly live Sunday Salon at the Ned Hotel in London. For more information, visit alicezaniajarvis.com forward slash Sunday Salon. <laughs> <laughs>